You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is one of those rare occasions, Alec, where you're actually in the city in which I'm recording in. And it's like, we do this virtually all the time, but I feel like we should be like shoulder to shoulder teaming up <laughs> with Bracken. That's how I feel. <laughs> we should have arranged that. It would have cut down on the tech snafus. <laughs> yeah, that that might have been a better idea since we're so close anyway. But Do you have two mics? Do you have your own external mic, Alec, if you were to do this? Would you bring BY own mic? Um, I do have one and I'm currently, I have a really nice mic that I'm loaning out to someone right now that I could, I could potentially pick up. Okay. Cause I've, I've done two or three times someone in the same room as me, but I, only with one mic with a splitter. And so we're both kind of like ear to ear on it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's less, I, less than ideal. So I was, um, perusing your Instagram, Alec, a little bit. You're the real deal. <laughs> uh, what do you mean by that? I mean, what does that mean? I was going to see where you took it, but now I guess it's back on me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was hoping you were going to say, darn so, right I am. So you're very technical. You're very knowledgeable. You're very studied. You're very um, calculated. Uh, and I would say educated. And I think that came through in the post that I was perusing through. So I think that's what I mean. Is that satisfying? <laughs> Yeah, that's a very satisfying answer. I, I appreciate that. Um, I try to bring some level of, of knowledge and expertise to my posts rather than just putting out stuff for show, you know? So even if it's, it's just helpful to a couple people, that's, uh, that makes it worth the time. If I had to describe you to people, I would say, you can find out everything you need to know about Alec Blennis by watching him squat. <laughs> the attention to detail that went into perfecting the most perfect squad I've ever seen in my life. There's so many things I, so many things wrong with it, Bracken. What are you talking about? I'm, it's a constant struggle. Exactly, and that's exactly it. Like you're, <laughs> you present a visually perfect squat, which means you put a lot of time into research and development, and then you're constantly working on it. And I, again, I feel like that's everything anyone would need to know about you as a person could be summed up by your squat experience. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, I'm glad that someone out there thinks my squad is perfect. Uh, it definitely has been many years in the making. Uh, and I, every once in a while I get, you know, those Facebook memories or whatever. And it's like, here's you squatting 10 years ago. I'm like, what is that garbage? You know? Um, so it is nice to see some of those things once in a while and get some positive feedback. Yeah. You had, you started popping up on my timeline. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's just because my phone heard me talk about you or to you and but but you weren't in my like top of my feed and now you're always at the top of my feed so now I see more of what you post this is just in the last month but you had something the other day that again I think exemplifies exactly why I've wanted to have you on here for a long time and we've actually had requests for you over the past we're coming up on our two-year anniversary I know happy anniversary it's a big moment kind of like get off the pot time or whatever, but, (laughs) but, but you had a post the other day and I want to talk about this because I feel like it lays the groundwork for who you are as a coach and the levels that you kind of operate at. And it was a repost of, or a a repost of a screenshot of a squat you post 
which yeah. <laughs> you're already smiling and nodding. The gist of the post, and I'm going to butcher it, but the gist of the post that Squat you posted was people talk all the time about overtraining, but they need to focus more about under recovery because you're really under recovered rather than overtrained. And there may have been a little bit more to it. And I thought, what did he find wrong with this message? Because I've said a version of that before, which is just put more days in between your workouts and you're going to be fine to some extent. And then I right. went and read each subsequent card that popped up and you broke down the fact that they are leading people to worry more about squeezing in more foam rolling and and cryo and ice bath and recovery practices into the same time period. And then they can feel better and do it again rather than letting the body's actual biological process play out. And I realized, yeah, this is why we got to have him on because <laughs> he and I read the same post and I thought, good for them. Yeah, let's focus on recovery. And you read the underlying cause and then you eviscerated it slowly and casually over the next like eight posts you made. So again, between your squat and your response to squat you, I feel like that's how I picture you as an athlete and a coach. And I haven't seen you in person since what, 2013? Oh gosh, it's been years now. It's been years. And yet I knew you a little bit early on in the sport and I've kept tabs on you since. So I feel like I know you. And yet all I can really sum you up as is your squat and your response to something. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think the problem that I have with a post like that is when someone like you or a knowledgeable coach reads that, they can t immediately take away something positive from that and think, oh, yeah, we need to, to focus on this make sure we have adequate recovery time and we're managing our stressors appropriately and everything like that. And you take a very, very, you know, broad and in-depth knowledge base and apply it to, to a short, you know, just a sentence that Squat you has put out there. Um, but at the same time, the audience that's actually reading that is probably not so well-educated, well-versed coaches. It's a lot of the general population that doesn't have that deep of an understanding. So they take that same sentence and they walk into the gym, you know, having gotten blackout drunk the night before, sleeping five hours, and they're like, Hey coach, I'm, I'm not recovering as well as I should. What do you think about cryotherapy? I'm like, you're not under recovering. You sleep like shit and your lifestyle sucks. So let's talk about what the actual problem is and not lump everything in, you know, together under this recovery and think we can fix certain problems with totally misguided solutions. Mm. You're basically splitting hairs when you really need to be looking at like the whole head of hair, so to speak. Well, let's choose a different analogy, Kirk. <laughs> I'm just trying to jab when uh, I can, Bracken. I I'll talk about your on. hands again. Somebody messaged me a meme regarding your hands today, but I won't say who it was. Was it Alec? <laughs> <laughs> it was not Alec. <laughs> well, should we lay some background here, Kirk? I was just going to ask if you could do that because I don't go far back like you guys do. And, and Alec, I must say from the outside um, – you come up all the damn time still because people love to talk about the old days, the the you know the beginning of all this and the OGs and all of this, and people refer to you as like the original VJ Jones, who is sort of the young kid who came up and um, and I don't know much more than that, and I also am damn curious why you're not around in the sport anymore. But like I've heard your name dropped, if I'm not you know a few dozen times, without asking for it to be dropped. Um, by people still remembering Alec Blennis 
and Bracken's one of them. Uh, Bracken, you've probably said Alex's name a dozen times on this podcast mm -hmm. in reference to things over the, the last two years. So I was just going to bring up, like, let's lay some foundation here. Why, why we're talking yeah. to you today and all that. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's probably funny to Alec to hear this because he doesn't know that I think about him all the time. <laughs> but but Alec, Alec and I had brief interactions a decade ago and it left a lasting impression on me to the point where I kept tabs on what he was doing throughout the years and the things he's posting and, and just everything about it. And because I, I like the way his mind works. So I met Alec through Spartan race in 2011. I believe it was, we both raced the inaugural Spartan world championships. It was a probably eight or nine mile race down in Glen Rose, Texas in probably November, December. I think it was December. It was, it was cold. December. That water. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was very cold. They ran it as the last wave of the day on a Sunday. So the course was chewed up. It had rained all weekend. It was cold. It was wet. We did a lake swim. It was just like a very primal experience. But I ran the whole race uh, vying for a podium spot. And we got to the end of the race. And we got to this thing called a Tyrolean Traverse. And it was a rope stretched across water. And you had to traverse across it without falling in. And at the time, it was three attempts and you were out of the race. It was not a burpee obstacle. They had a few of those in that race, if I remember correctly. And you could see the finish line from here. And I failed it twice in a row. I had no idea what I was doing. My grip was beyond gone. And this guy is standing there and he's trying to tell me what to do. And he keeps saying, just wait, my son will be, few, be through in a few minutes and he'll show you how to do it. <laughs> and then, yeah, sure enough, this kid, a kid runs by a few minutes later and <laughs> It's etched into my mind because this is one of the more embarrassing moments of my life. I was in third place and I failed out of a race at the finish line and I got pity applause and like it's etched. So this kid comes by in his East Bay gray compression shorts. Alec, <laughs> this is how specific my memory of that day is. I was so embarrassed that it's etched in there forever. So you come running up in your East Bay compression shorts, scurry right across this rope and go on. And I turned to the guy and said, he didn't tell me anything. <laughs> <laughs> and then I failed for the third time and I left. And it turned out that was your dad and that was you. Yeah. I was 16 or 17 year old Alec who already had a plan for how to get across this thing that 26 year old Bracken was totally unprepared for. And so and then we chatted at a few races after this and you, you gave me your band so that I could continue on in the ultra at the world championships the next year, because I didn't have a band. I wasn't planning to do it. You had gone off course and just donated your, basically your race entry to me so I could continue. Like we had these little brief interactions, but every interaction I ever had stuck with me that this kid, and you were a kid at the time yeah, is just like punching above his weight with every word I've ever heard him say. Like you were a vegan before it was cool to be vegan. You were running in zero drop shoes before that was a thing. You were doing your yoga or your deep squat. Like everything you did, you explored and did for a reason at 16 and 17 when most kids have a hard enough time deciding what to have for breakfast. <laughs> I just thought like, this is a mind that's either going to go off to college and turn into a successful career, like just straight down the, the hallway. That didn't or it's going to just continue to do wild and unique things. And so that's a long-winded explanation of why I started following your career throughout the years. Well, that's one of the, the kindest introductions I've ever heard. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> I thought it was a little long-winded. 
you know, and <laughs> yourself included for sure, especially back in those, you know, the glory days of OCR, there was a lot of special people, you know, like every, there's so many people I still keep up with, you know, through social media and they're continuing to do just really, really cool things. I think it took a unique breed of person to dive headfirst into a, you know, just this burgeoning sport there in the, the early days of it. Um, so, it was, you know, it's a good company to be in. Well, and, and your growth from there took me by surprise, not because you grew from there, but the direction it went. So from the outside, here's my perspective. Right? There's a 17-year-old vegan barefoot runner who's good at running and has a good head on his shoulders. And now he goes off to Georgia Tech, I believe, and gets an engineering degree, but then goes over and disappears to Hawaii for like a year and is married or engaged or something, comes back, and now he's jacked out of his mind and he's coaching strength training, but he's still coaching ultras. And I thought he was an engineer, but he's doing, and now he's writing blogs and posts about endurance sports and how to train with different levels of volume and different styles of strength training to support running. And it all rings true and makes sense to me. But the last time I saw him, he was 30 pounds lighter and had never <laughs> lifted. And like he disappeared to the jungle and came back this, like all of it was bizarre, but sensical when you take a look from a further like step back. And, and I, I, we have you here to talk your coaching philosophy, but I do want to know your journey because for someone I've not known, but known for a decade, I know only the highlights and the, the social media snapshots. So take me from that first time I saw you at 16 or 17 to where we are today. For sure. And so if you go back to, you know, even going back into like my, my early childhood days, like I was always super passionate about math and science, whatever, you know, uh, academic, high achiever, whatever that means. And uh, so I wanted to do something with that. Uh, and then I gradually got more and more interested and involved in, you know, athletics and running and lifting and all of this kind of stuff. But I always kind of viewed it as this, this hobby. Like I'm going to go off and try to make a bunch of money, uh, you know, in the corporate world or inventing something or, or whatever. And then hopefully I'll have enough money to travel and race and do all these, these other fun things. Did you say inventing something or whatever? Yeah. Inventing? Something like that. Yeah. Uh, oh, just okay. go out and, you know, be, uh, so like my degree is, is actually physics from Georgia Tech. Um, so it wasn't engineering. Not quite engineering, but close. So I'm already off. <laughs> so I figured, you know, I'd, I'd go and I'd, I'd use that as just a way to, uh, to do something that I enjoy, make some money. And then there would, there would be, you know, athletics and stuff on the side. Uh, but as I got deeper and deeper into the sport of obstacle racing, started coaching some people on the side, I realized that that could actually be a career in and of itself. So uh, while I was, you know, going to Georgia Tech for physics, when it came time to decide between grad school or not grad school, luckily I had a very uh, heavy-handed pull from my girlfriend at the time and now wife who said, hey, you're making some money doing some online coaching. Why don't we just dip to Hawaii for a little bit and then you can you know, if you want to go to grad school after, like, that's a great idea. That sounds like a fun adventure. Um, so graduated my, my BS in physics. And then, so we, we went to Hawaii for, uh, you know, six months or so living the dream. Like I was, um, uh, what I thought was good money at the time. Turns out it, it Which really island wasn't, were you on? um, on the big island, um, okay. making, <laughs> making good money for, you know, someone fresh out of college enough to, to pay the, the rent for like the jungle hut we had and, you know, live off of some protein bars for a couple months. Um, spent six months there, literally just like waking up and we picked this place out in the jungle because it had a gym. It was literally like a little hut in the gym, in the jungle with a squat rack and some plates. And that was it. So our routine was wake up in the morning, lift for like 
an hour and a half, two hours, run down the, down the road to the beach, swim snorkel for like three, four hours, and then run back up the three, four mile hill to the, to the place. And then we were exhausted and would like maybe bike into town, pick up some dinner, uh, and then bike back. But it was just like basically a jungle fitness retreat day in and day out for like six months. Can you lay a timeline for me? So you were in high school when Brack and, and your romance began. And then that was two years of high school and Spartan OCR racing. And then you went and took a hiatus or were you still racing in college? I don't know any of this. So I'm just curious there. Um, I mean, to, to give even the fuller picture. So like I was running high school cross country um, going into ninth or 10th grade. I transferred schools for academics out of district. And they said, hey, you can't transfer out of district and compete. You have to sit out a season. Like, well, what the heck am I going to do when I sit out a season? So I just started looking for stuff. And that's how I found Spartan Race in the mm-hmm. first place. So I was sitting out a season from high school um, and then did my first OCR. I think that would be 10th grade, uh, so sophomore year of high school. Okay. And you're, are you a Minnesota boy or are you from somewhere else? No, I'm I'm from Atlanta. Uh, my wife is from Minnesota, so I kind of got pulled more to her her family. I know how that. Yeah, I can see how that works. Okay, got yeah. it. So you basically were looking to fill a void for that that transfer year, and found Spartan, and that that was the Texas year. That was uh that was the Texas year. So that was um or kind of preceding that because I raced the Georgia Sprint 2011 in April. I remember April 30th. 2011 because it was engraved on the sword that I got for third place uh, so that was my first one and then did the Carolina Super and then the inaugural Beast in Vermont which was just amazing uh, it was amazingly disastrous um, just doing a three hour race that we thought was going to be an hour and a half and just seeing everyone crumble and fall apart like a last man standing sort of thing um, and then Glen Rose, Texas was the race after that Okay, so you were 15 actually at the time unless you had an earlier birthday i think i was um i think i was 16 that year yeah 16 16 going on 17 um in 2011 because i was born in 94 okay that was interesting so i met you three months after i got back from hawaii with from my honeymoon oh really (laughs) yeah that's funny we always tell people uh you know our wedding was only 500 dollars, but our honeymoon was Six months and several thousand. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to detract from your story. I just wanted to maybe understand the timeline a, a little better there. Yeah, so I, I raced uh, I, first year of OCR was 2011, was signed Spartan Pro Team, the first you know inaugural Spartan Pro Team for like 2012, 2013. Um, so I was on the Spartan Pro Team my freshman year of college, um, which made it kind of difficult to be going to like a race every other weekend and traveling and stuff and trying to, to manage the Georgia Tech academic load too. So it was, it was a little bit challenging to get through all that. Um, so I think by the time, um, you know, I graduated, uh, when my wife suggested, let's go to Hawaii, I was like, that sounds great. I'm freaking tired. Like <laughs> that was a long four years. Um, so it was, it was nice to kind of step away. Uh, I think I just got burnt out on a little bit of everything, um, between school and the Spartan pro team and racing and, from like 2010 to 2016, I think I did 200 plus events. Um, so it was, it was just a lot. Um, so I kind of disappeared, fell off the radar for a little bit and just focused on having fun, traveling, training, 
didn't think about competing much much at all. Um, I threw like a New York City Marathon in there just kind of for fun, more of like a tourist thing than anything else. Uh, and a few other, you know, things like that. But for the most part, I really haven't competed much um, since, you know, 2016 Spartan days. And I'm just now looking to get back into, into some things now. All right. That's, well, we we glossed over a little bit in the process, of course. Yeah. yeah. What, when did your, because I feel like you have one of the better mixes of endurance knowledge and strength training knowledge in the current in our current realm here the people that don't have to really concede on either point sure when when did that really when did those roots take place was that back at georgia tech or was that in your jungle (laughs) um i i owe so much to so many people for the the strength side of things um a lot of it was kind of self-taught in the uh, you know, in college going through Spartan race, um, I knew that strength was important just for some other sports I'd done. Like I, I wrestled for a little bit. I was a pole vaulter for a little bit. So I had some initial strength background, um, especially with some like body weight training stuff just from those sports. And I enjoyed it. Uh, I knew I didn't want to end up being, you know, kind of the, the skinnier, frail, prototypical ultra endurance athlete. Um, so part of it was, was just physique oriented. Um, I had some good coaches at a, a CrossFit gym in Atlanta for a little while uh, when I was first starting out. Um, had some good influences in Hawaii as well. Um, and then when I started coaching uh, for Complete Human Performance, I was surrounded by a team of, of world-class coaches in a bunch of different disciplines. Uh, so we had world record-holding powerlifters, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit athletes, endurance athletes, all kind of on this one cohesive team. So getting to learn and, and kind of pick their brains for years, I thought was super, super helpful as well. Uh, and then I started doing some in-person coaching at Lifetime St. Louis Park, which a lot of people don't know this about Lifetime St. Louis Park specifically, but we're known kind of within the company of Lifetime for being the best of the, one of the best of the best, if not the best of the best when it comes to our personal training staff. Um, so had a lot of really, really smart coaches to learn from there as well. So over the years had a lot of great influence that kind of uh, helped me build my strength training knowledge. Uh, which I think that variety of influences coming from so many different places has helped me have a, a wider skill set uh, in terms of, you know, knowing the CrossFit side of things, knowing the powerlifting side of things, et cetera. How did you get hooked up with Complete Human Performance? Uh, so someone that was into obstacle racing at the time, uh, some of you might know the name Elise Vigalski. Um, she was doing a lot of races on the, the circuit back in the day. Uh, and we connected that a, a race had... Uh, apparently a, a meaningful conversation um, to her just kind of on the, the podium that she then referred me to the, the founder of that company and said, Hey, you should reach out to this, this kid for, uh, you know, adding an OCR coach to the staff. Uh, so I was really appreciative of that because that really kicked off my coaching career and, and got me headed in the, the direction I needed to go. Because you are maybe the, the only person I know that started your coaching in the OCR realm and didn't have to like, create their own thing like their own company their own platform everyone else like yancey created yancey camp and and dennis created his thing richard had his running thing already that but it was everyone was on their own you were the first person to be brought in as an ocr coach to an established some other platform because it wasn't and to some extent still isn't 
a respected or acknowledged field. OCR is no one looks to it and says, you know what we need is an OCR coach. <laughs> so that, that that's kind of a you, yeah. you had an atypical path there to have general acceptance as a niche sport. You know, I've never really thought of, about it that way, but that's totally true that most people just kind of had to go off and, and be a niche uh, on their own. Uh, what makes THP or Complete in Performance unique in the first place is their approach to concurrent or hybrid training. So people that want to have kind of a unique mix of goals, combining strength training with endurance training, for example, we've had a lot of like powerlifters that want to run a marathon, a lot of people training for state military special forces and selection, people that need to be strong and fast. Um, and OCR is a great example of that as a sport. So I think it just made sense um, for them to have someone like that on, on staff to kind of fill that hybrid niche that OCR is. Were you ready or did you grow with it? No. Yeah, no, I was, I was not ready for it at all. And, um, I think there's some element of, you know, people talk about imposter syndrome and all that kind of stuff. And you never feel like you're, you're ready. Uh, you know, every time I, I get a new client, there's, you know, half of me is like super excited for all the cool stuff I'm going to be able to do with them. And then half of me that's like, oh my God, can I actually help this person as much as I want to help this person? And I can't believe how much they're paying me. Do I deserve this? You know, th there's always that, that thing in your head that asks, like, do you really know what you're doing? Uh, but that was definitely, definitely there at the beginning. What I find interesting about your explanation of knowledge is you didn't one, once mention a classroom. You didn't once mention literature, which I'm sure you've read some, you didn't mention any of those things. And I have a degree in kinesiology and then a master's in ex-phys and sports psych. And I've had my own business now for 11 years, personal training, and I've been endurance coaching now for about five. Um, and I can say hands down that the knowledge I use, sure, it laid a foundation from school, but it's mostly been from mentors and my clients and my compadres in the gym while we're doing stuff. People have been doing it longer than I have. Um, I hate to say it, but very little has come from the classroom comparatively. Your mind either works that way or it doesn't. You're either a sponge or you're not. And you're either curious or you're not. And mm -hmm. you either soak stuff up or figure it out or find out or you don't in this realm, right? You like either naturally gravitate towards it or you don't. You become a student of it outside of the classroom or you don't. And I just find that interesting that even like Bracken's introduction of you in this sort of great mind um, has a physics degree, not a physiology degree. Yet here we are talking to you. And and I, I think that, for example, all of my certifications have expired, yet I own a business. I'm not <laughs> certified by anybody right now because I don't think it matters, right? Yeah. And I, and I think those credentials sometimes, uh, although nice to have uh, outside your office door, mean very little compared to, and I'm sure you have them now too, especially being employed by Lifetime, you probably have to carry those credentials. However, I just appreciate that upbringing of knowledge in, in a way, because that's more practical than a BS in kinesiology, yeah. in my opinion. You know, most of the, the best coaches I've ever talked to talk about how they used to have X certification. You know, you ask them like, what do you think about whatever? They're like, oh, I think I got that one like 10 years ago. I guess it expired. It was fine. You know, mm -hmm. um, Definitely when I was, I was starting out, I wanted the, the validation of, you know, all the certs and whatnot. So, you know, you spend all the money on these way overpriced certifications. And just to be honest, what you pay for to what you get is just like makes my head spin, um, you know, in comparison to the knowledge that you can get just out there in the field. Um, but I went through a, a number of those. And like you said, it does lay a good foundation 
Uh, and for people that lack some of those mentors or lack the environments where they can really get in and learn hands-on as much as would be ideal, I think it's a great place to start. But there's absolutely no substitute for good coaches around you working with people face-to-face or virtually or whatever it is and just getting the experience, getting the reps, um, and then being a student of it, like actually going out there and looking through the literature and reading it and trying to digest it um, rather than just running with what you learned on day one. Yeah, I agree with that. Just something I noted about your yeah your rise, so to speak, in the fitness world. So how old were you when you signed with them? Uh, so I started coaching with um, Complete Human Performance at either 17 or 18 years old. I can't recall exactly. And then when you went off to the jungle and then came back, were you, what, 21, 22 then? Yeah, so I got married um, there when I was um, 21. Uh, so yeah, I, I was 21 when I got back from the jungle. And what did you do then? Did you pick back up where you were or did you have a different sense of kind of been through the fire a bit, laid down my search, did that, now it's time to to do it the way I want to? You know, there's a lot I would do differently. I think I didn't fully appreciate the amount of freedom and flexibility I had and just everything that I could have done. Um, so I feel like I was a little bit stagnant in the sense that I, I kind of came back like that was fun what now maybe I was kind of wait and see I was kind of in a holding pattern of continuing to work with the clients that I had but not really getting out there and getting after it as much as I wish I had you know with, with the flexibility and the resources I had at the time uh, and after sitting in that for a little while um, a friend of mine who had been employed at Lifetime was kind of talking to me about it and said hey you should go in and, and think about working here it's a lot of fun I enjoy it um, so I just kind of didn't and you know, an informal informational interview and, and got to see what a great staff they had. Like, this is sweet. I'm going to give this a go. So I've um, been doing that as well. In addition to uh, my independent coaching, my com- complete human performance work. Uh, I'm working with another company called health engineered now. So I got, I got my hands in a lot of buckets as far as coaching goes, um, kind of four big, big buckets at this point. Um, if I could go back in time and do it overnight, I'd regret you know, anything I've done or anyone I've worked with or met. Um, but I would have taken some of that freedom I had, you know, post Hawaii um, and really gone all in with the independent coaching, put some more time, put some more resources, kept myself busier uh, rather than being like, this is kind of cool, you know, making good virtual money. Um, I should have done more. Did it stunt your growth or just your financial growth? Like growth as a coach or like, which part do you regret? Um, That's not a trap question either. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think there's any shame in trying to build up your financial, you know, stability. Yeah, probably, probably a little bit of, of both in the sense that like when you're, when you're used to like not having money and being in college and then you get used to living it out of a, a jungle hut in Hawaii, your threshold for like what you think good money is, is pretty low. Um, so I was in a place where I, I thought that I was making as much money as I, you know, would be comfortable with and that kind of thing. And then you just start getting hungrier and you're like, but what if I did this or expanded my business in this way or had this many clients and you start to want more. Um, and I kind of answered that question for myself by adding some of the in-person work. But I think one of the things I could have done is just invested a little bit more in, in myself and my own business at the time. Um, Looking back, I don't, I don't know if it was a lack of, of knowledge or lack of kind of will and motivation to do that. 
Um, but for whatever reason, I didn't invest in myself, I think, as much as I should have at the time. Yeah. Does that change your trajectory now? Um, you know, it's, it's tough to say because I do have so many different things going on right now um, between, uh, you know, four different companies, so to speak, that I'm, I'm working for. Uh, I have some ideas about where I'd, I'd like to be. Um, most of those ideas involve, um, you know, being out in Bali, Indonesia, um, just kind of relaxing and living the dream. Um, so trying to find a, a path to that uh, sooner rather than later would be pretty cool. Um, but I also don't want to lose, you know, the, the in-person connection that I have with, with a lot of athletes that are super fun to work with. Um, so trying to figure out some sort of balance there where I get a little bit more, a um, little bit more freedom, a little bit more flexibility, but am able to keep doing all the things I love to. Makes sense. Why Bali? Uh, so if, have you been to Bali? <laughs> <laughs> so my wife and I, we love to travel. We try to go on a, a couple, you know, big trips per year, um, this something we kind of hold ourselves to. And lately we've been kind of alternating between some like more outdoorsy trips. Like we, we did Iceland, we did Bali, uh, we've done Hawaii a couple of times and some Pacific Northwest stuff. Uh, and then we've done some more city type things like New York city, Paris, et cetera. Um, and while they're all great, it's really the more outdoorsy stuff that really gets me fired up to go on a trip again. Um, and of all the places we've been, I think our best experience was Bali. Um, the nature there, the people there, um, what you get for your, your dollar there, it's all phenomenal. It's a pain in the butt to get there, but once you're there, you understand why people take the time to do it. Um, so we're hopeful that we can, uh, I don't want to say semi-permanent residence, but some sort of system where we can go there more often would be great. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. I'm happy with the answer to my basic question. Um, so you, I guess just to complete the timeline, then you came back from Hawaii and then you jumped back into racing for a while. It sounds like, is that correct? Or did, were you done then? Um, and then why did you decide to leave ultimately, I guess is what I'm getting to, uh, to leave Hawaii or what do you mean? Uh, to stop racing at least OCR for, for a bit. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, so I raced a lot, right? Like 2011 to 2016. And then actually it kind of, I don't want to call it a career ending injury, but in a sense it was, I sprained my ankle pretty bad at, um, trying to remember. I, I think it was maybe a Virginia race or something like that. It was in August of 2016. I sprained my ankle pretty bad. That would track that winter green would do that. Yeah. Um, and it, it, uh, I kind of backed off the race. It wasn't bad enough that I couldn't keep running, but I couldn't keep racing. So I kind of jogged the rest of the race with, with a buddy who was a little bit further back. And um, about a month later, I tried to get back into another race and it like, just wasn't quite ready. Um, so I just, that kind of pulled me away a little bit. And granted, that wasn't a major injury. It wasn't anything too bad, but it was just enough to get me to back off for a couple of weeks. And sometimes you don't realize how burnt out or how stressed out or, or whatever you are until you step away just for a second and you get to breathe. Like, oh man, that was a lot. <laughs> uh, so it was just kind of like this minor, minor little ankle sprain pulled me out of a race, gave me a breather for a second. Um, and I was like, I've been doing it far too much for far too long between like, you know, basically an OCR every other weekend, maybe an ultra every month. Like I might do a 50 mile race, a Spartan race and something else, like all in the same calendar month. And that was going on for a couple of years and it just wasn't really sustainable. For me, I think it was in that cycle of like race, 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 and you're never really 
training or improving or anything like that. So I felt kind of like I was at a plateau. Um, and granted, the smarter thing would have just been a more sustainable approach all along. Um, but, you know, and, you know, lesson learned, I really just kind of stepped away, went to Hawaii shortly after, uh, did some cool runs. Like to date, still one of the coolest runs I've ever done was this like 36 mile run around Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Super, super cool. Just wasn't in competition, you know, uh, and I've done a handful of things like that since. But then getting back from Hawaii in 2017, really the only major events I did was uh, the Tuscobia Winter Ultra, which was like an 80-mile self-supported sled drag across Wisconsin in the middle of winter. Uh, New York City Marathon I ran for fun. And then a tenth of the High Rocks blew up real bad. <laughs> so just been a couple of things. I'd say the, uh, the, the coolest thing or, or most notable thing I've done um, since was I beat Hunter McIntyre's Murph world record last year. Um, so that was a lot of fun to do. Um, and then I won the, the crucible hosted by CHP, um, just last month. So those are two pretty big accomplishments. That I was, I was really proud of in the last year or so. So I want to talk about Murph actually for a little bit before we get back into coaching, because the Murph record is a, one of the bigger current fitness trend records to beat. And yours got almost no notoriety, publication, recognition at all. When Hunter broke it, it was it was a big deal from both sides. People were either lauding it or ripping it apart, but it was it made waves everywhere. And you clearly trained for it. You clearly had a plan of attack for it, and you did it, and you provided enough proof that we know it was legitimate and it got no wave. So why don't you take us through the process from when you decided to do it till its culmination? Yeah. You know, I think one of my mistakes was not doing it on Memorial day where there was a lot of attention and traction behind it. Um, and the reason I didn't is because I had no idea that I could beat the record. Uh, I just went in on Memorial day, like any other day. I'm like, Hey, what's the workout today? And like, they're doing Murph, obviously. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. And I knew 100 set the record uh, and I knew what it was. I'm like, I want to see how close I can get, right? And I, I think his record was uh, like 34, 34.20 or something in the low 34s, right? Give us a quick breakdown of Murph for anyone who's not familiar. So Murph is it's a one-mile run uh, followed by 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 air squats, and another one-mile run. Um, and then depending on kind of how you execute it, you might do it with a 20-pound weight vest which is what Hunter and I have done, the official record. And you may or may not break up the reps, meaning you either do all 100 pull-ups before moving on to the push-ups, or you're allowed to do some push-ups and pull-ups and squats and kind of repeat that in the cycle. Um, so the toughest way to go about it, of course, is vested, so with 20 pounds, and unpartitioned, meaning you have to finish all of one exercise before moving on to the second. Um, so Hunter's record for the weighted unpartitioned Murph, somewhere in the 34-minute ballpark, uh, and I knew knew that kind of going in just on Memorial Day. Like, I just want to see how close I can get. We'll go for it. Um, and I ended up finishing like five, 10 seconds under his record kind of just in my gym. It's like, damn, I didn't think I could do that. You know, I knew it was kind of a wheelhouse workout for me. I'm great at the gymnastics component, uh, the body weight component. I'm shorter than Hunter's. So my, you know, my lever's a little bit shorter. I can move a little bit quicker at some of those things. Uh, but I was still really surprised to have actually beaten Hunter in something like that. Cause I've raced against him a dozen times and never beat him. I got really close one time and that was like my claim to fame. So to actually beat his Murph time was, um, 
was very surprising to me. So I, I instantly thought like, man, I gotta, I gotta do this again. And I think within an hour I had texted Matt B. Davis and like, Hey, I just beat Hunter's record. I want to do it again and better. Can we set up like a record attempt or something like that? Um, and he being Matt Davis, you know, his personality was super skeptical. He's like, yeah, right. Like you and 15 other people have told me they can beat his record. Um, but we, we go way back. He's like, you know what? I, I believe you more than I believe anyone else has told me. Let's do it. Um, so we set up the live stream, the broadcast, and then three weeks later, um, I do more of the official record attempt, you know, on a track and all that kind of stuff. And I beat it by uh, about two minutes or so. Uh, I wish it had gotten more traction. You know, I'm admittedly a bit disappointed that no one seemed to care that too much at the time. Um, but of course, I'm not the social media star that, that he is. I don't have the connections that he is. So I think it just didn't, didn't make its rounds uh, as much as it could have. Okay, so the obvious question is, are you just going to do it again this year someplace with someone who is a star who's going to go for it and just do it right there, beat them, make your waves, or have you moved on from it? I'm definitely going to do it again because I know I can do better, right? So a lot of people ask, like, did you train for it, all that kind of stuff? And, you know, obviously I, I trained hard. It, it'd be uh, misleading to say I didn't train for it. But I didn't train specifically with the Murph in mind, right? Like I just am kind of going through my normal training routine, all that kind of stuff. Um, didn't taper or anything like that. Going to go into the Memorial Day one. And then for the three weeks leading into the, the next attempt, I did a couple of just kind of pacing workouts. But it's not like I had had a whole Murph training block or anything, right? Um, so I think this year, if I put a little more attention into it, I think I can go sub 30 minutes. Um, so I want to find somewhere to go sub 30 get a little bit more uh, recognition for it, if you will. I just got to figure out exactly the right time and place. I know there's a, a big Murph competition here in Minnesota that tends to get some attention, uh, but I'm not exactly sure what that's going to look like yet. I just know I want to go sub 30 somewhere. Did anybody else take a crack at that thing after they saw you break the record? Because two minutes is uh, astounding. That's a, that's a margin there. Then did people take some swings after that and get anywhere close? I know Chris, we, I think is how you say his name. He had a record attempt planned shortly after mine uh, and then kind of withdrew his, his record attempt. Uh, he had like a knee injury or something like that. But I know he's out there kind of gunning for it too. I'm not sure where he's at um, right now in, in terms of wanting to take a crack at it again, though. So where between, because our listeners, most of them know Hunter McIntyre. Um, he's been on like three times, I think now, but if you had to break it down, where are you better than Hunter McIntyre at Murph? My assumption is you took time on pull-ups and a significant amount on squats. Not a, not a bad guess, um, but I actually made up the most time on the push-ups. Uh, Look at us. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to edit this out. I guess you took a significant amount of time on push-ups. How is that? There you and go. Some transitions. Yeah, transitions uh, probably too. So... Uh, I I think Hunter's mistake, and I, I bet he could also do a better job if he reattempted it. I think he just went out hot and got through his pull up so fast that he was a little gas on the push up portion because he was breaking his push ups into like sets of two at some point, just like arms completely wrecked. Uh, which for an athlete of, of his caliber is a little bit surprising, but I think it was just more of a, a pacing issue than anything. That being said, typically crossfitters are not super heavy on, on chest training, more like overhead stuff, stronger shoulders and, and back and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I do like to make 
uh, poke fun at CrossFitters' lack of chest development. Uh, so the fact that I do a bit more just general like hypertrophy or bodybuilding style training as opposed to strict like CrossFit style training, I think just having that chest development helped out a lot on the push-ups. Um, the fact that my limbs are a little bit shorter certainly helped too. Uh, but I knew that I would not beat the record by running fast, right? So I think Hunter ran that first mile in 5.30 or so. I'm like, yes, I can run a 5.30 mile with a 20-pound vest, but that is not easy to do. <laughs> um, and that just having so much experience with other CrossFit workouts that, that kind of have that cardio buy-in, I've learned time and time again that if you take that buy-in easier than you think you need to, you're going to feel so much better when it gets to, to some of the strength components afterwards. Um, so I decided I just want to run a six-minute mile. Six-minute mile to vest should not totally wreck me. I should be able to jump right up on the pull-up bar, kind of do my thing without without being gassed. So that's exactly what I did. Six-minute mile. Kept pace with Hunter for the most part on pull-ups. I was a little bit slower. My bar ended up being a little bit shaky, a little bit wobbly. Uh, so I had to actually take 30 to 45 seconds longer than I planned in my pacing workouts on pull-ups. Uh, but then I made up for it on push-ups, and it was super fast. Squats were super fast. Broke down a little bit on that last run, but I was I was had a big enough margin at that point. It wasn't a big deal. So what does breaking down look like in a one-mile weight vest run after <laughs> 300 squats? I think it was like a 715 or something. Uh, it felt way slower. Were you cramping? Less cramping as much as wanting to throw up, uh, which was surprising because yeah. that's an unusual. I'm not usually like a puker when it comes to running type stuff. Um, very few times have has that happened to me. I think the last time it did was like after three Chick-fil-A sandwiches going into cross-country practice back in high school days. Um, <laughs> so having that feeling of like coming off the squats and wanting to puke, it's like, what is going on? Um, it's like you can't puke on camera. That's that. Um, so I, I actually... I don't want to say I jogged it in because uh, I was definitely working. I was definitely suffering. I was like, I've got the record in the bag. I can back off the pace just a hair so I don't literally die on camera right now. Um, mm -hmm. But I also know I probably could have kicked a little bit if, if I was closer to the wire, you know. Hmm. Is this a workout when you do it again? Is it going to be harder to do it well next to people? Or is that atmosphere not going to disrupt your extremely personal style of work that needs to be done to do well in a workout like this? For better or worse, I think I'm really good at, at zoning out. Like okay. whether it's it's music or people or competition or whatever, I I definitely go inward when I'm training or competing or anything like that. Um, so the, the presence of others or not, I probably won't even, even notice. Um, I'll just kind of do my thing. I do think a lot of people get away with some pretty sloppy form on Murph. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, I get that standards are standards. And like, if you can have sloppy form and it still meets the standards and you're trying to get, get through the workout quickly, I, I get it. I get that people are not always going to look flawless in competition, but some of the stuff you see with Murph is a little questionable. Uh, and I like to hold myself to really high movement standard just as a coach for one. Um, but two, just how you feel afterwards. Like, yeah, you might get through it a little bit faster with sloppy form, but I've, I feel good. I've never had any major lifting related injuries other than ankle sprain. Uh, and I take a lot of pride in that. So hopefully not only will I have the fastest nerf, but the best looking one too. That's always the point of contention, right? Internet, internet in general are really good at identifying bad form. Yes. Yeah. And the, the push-ups are always, um, questionable and, um, 
some people even drew attention to that. Um, just people are always looking to give you shit, right? And I had called attention to Hunter's push-ups being sloppier than I would personally like. Um, and I said, you know what? Just to make things even better, I'm going to wear a really slim hyperwear vest so I can get full range of motion and really break like 90, get my chest to the floor, and not have the plate in the way that cuts off so much range of motion. Um, but then, of course, people gave me shit for that. And they're like, your vest was more comfortable. That's cheating. Like, my vest was another inch per push-up. What are you talking about? Uh, but, you know, that's mm, how it goes. Interesting. Okay, so maybe maybe we have to come up with a drum-up an event. I was thinking about it. Like, I was thinking about, you know, putting a feeler out there, reaching out to some people like, uh, you know, Hunter and Chris Woolley and, and whatever, some of the guys that have been going after it and, and putting something together. Um Hunter strikes me as the kind of guy that's kind of a, a one and done. Like he did the Murph, he's probably moved on. But I don't know. Maybe we put enough prize money out there, he'd be he'd be game. He's he's uh, always able to be goaded into a competition. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't think it would be too challenging. And he's not afraid to chase money. Like he's no shame. That's why he makes or his living. Yeah, or glory. <laughs> <laughs> Do people with the push-ups, is it, is it, so I have more of a problem walking out on the top once I get fatigued, but most people are getting shit for not breaking parallel or what? Most people, when they, when they do their push-up, and I know I'm not on video, but they kind of arch their back like this. So they just like hit hit their stomach to the floor really quick and their chest never really touches. That's the biggest thing. Um, And then the other, the other one is when you break it into a bunch of mini sets, like I did basically I think like 40 sets of five or something like really quick five is that last rep. Sometimes people's knees drop to the ground before they actually finish the last rep. So it's like, did you actually do five or four, that kind of thing. So there's a couple of things you got to watch out for when you start moving really fast. Mm, that makes sense. And then the squats, of course. But just the depth on the squats, I assume. Yeah. That's the other big contention point. Mm-hmm. I actually use you as a, as an inspiration when I train my wall balls now, because you, you, you messaged, you posted something about, you found that because of your good range of motion and squat, that your fastest way is to bounce off your calves for your squats. Yeah. And it wrecks your legs a little more, but you can go faster. And I, I've been implementing that with my wall ball work to try to get faster rather than doing <laughs> a, let my muscles stop me, let the, let the frame stop me and re kind of rebound. It's always nice to have a, a training partner or someone at your gym that's, that's better than you at something, right? And there's a guy that I train with at my gym who's like a, a regional level uh, kind of CrossFit athlete, and his best movement is wall balls. So when I do wall balls next to him, I feel like a schlub, uh, and I've been like trying to chip away at his, uh, his Karen time, which Karen is 150 wall balls per time, and knowing that he can do it in like 440 or something is just like... Bug, bugs the crap out of me. Like trying unbroken, to, unbroken, unbroken, yes. mega fast. And um, I, th- I think my last one was like five fifty or something, like just under six. And knowing that he's still a minute better than me, that just bugs me so much. So uh, it's good to have that kind of motivation to improve with those things. That's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you wanted to keep on the Murph train, but I wanted to keep the storyline rolling uh, or timeline rolling if we could. Mm-hmm. Um, just like uh, my big curiosity with you is, and you come back from Hawaii, I know this is still years ago we're talking, but, um, and you don't, you don't miss OCR enough to get back into it or other things become a priority. How come you never dipped your toes back in the water since? Um, my interests have shifted a, a little bit, you know, with, uh, doing more strength training, um, 
I just find myself leaning more towards, um, when I run, I want it to be just for like, you know, it's a really tough question actually, because there's, uh, there's a lot of really subtle reasons. It's hard to pinpoint just one big one. Um, but I guess for a while, I was kind of in a place where running was just an enjoyment thing. Like I, I didn't really want it to be super competitive anymore. Um, so I'd go out for runs in the woods and that kind of thing. But I, I really wasn't doing any workouts. I wasn't doing speed work. I wasn't doing tempo runs. It was kind of like going out and having fun in the woods for a little bit. Uh, and that's where I was at for, for a while. And just using that to, to stay in shape, um, you know, in terms of cardiovascular conditioning and just, you know, mental health and all that good stuff. Um, and then combining that with just the strength training, which kind of took, uh, took over the priority. Um, uh, so for the last three or four years, uh, I've been doing much more strength training than I had my OCR days. Hence, I've put on about 30, 35 pounds or so. Um, but I've always kept some kind of minimum amount of conditioning. One of the things I credit for that and, and maybe worth talking about, uh, in my opinion, one of the best decisions I've ever made was selling my car uh, so that I can run or bike everywhere. Uh, and that just kind of forces me to keep my conditioning up. Um, so every morning I've got like a 30-minute fat tire bike ride to work and 30-minute fat tire bike ride back. Um, so there's a lot of just built-in conditioning to my lifestyle. Um, and really, that's been it. Like, I, I run or bike everywhere, and I lift six days a week. And I've been doing that for three or four years now, and that's put on 30 to 35 pounds of lean mass. My conditioning is probably about 90% as good as it ever was. Uh, so I've kind of fallen into this routine where I'm staying really fit, um, almost as fit as I've ever been in, in any category, but it feels so easy. And I remember back when I was in college uh, on the Spartan Pro team and doing all that kind of stuff, the training volume I was putting in felt like it was about to break me. Like I was constantly like, how am I going to fit this workout in? Stressing about this, checking my spreadsheet plan I had built for myself. It was a very kind of stressful experience. But then when I look back and I think about what was the actual volume, like what were the hours, what were the sets, et cetera, it wasn't any more than I'm doing now. But the way it's kind of built into my life now, it's so much less stressful. It just, it doesn't feel like work at all. Um, and I really, really appreciate and enjoy kind of that place that I've gotten to with it. So headlamp, 15 degrees, dark winter morning, putting all your shit on to go to work isn't stressful? You know, I'll, I'll counter that, that sentence with this. I show up at work and I hear people whining about, yeah, I had to wake up early and chip the ice off my car and I froze my hands off on the steering wheel for 15 minutes. I couldn't get it to crank and then traffic was shit and I almost got in this accident and, and whatever um, where I'm like, I just woke up, put on my jacket and got on my bike like I always do. Uh, and I think it's, it's all in the gear. Like there's an investment side to that. But like when you get the bar mitts, you got the neoprene boot covers, you got a nice jacket. To me, it's just like a, it's a two piece outfit. Like I put on my, my warm pants, my jacket and I go and I'm good. Um, so I find that far less stressful than everything that everyone else has to deal with in the winter. Good answer. And I suppose if you sold a car, it's not much of an investment to get a couple hundred dollars. <laughs> exactly. What kind of fat tire bike do you have? Uh, so I, I got a couple bikes. Uh, my fat tires, I call it my beater bike. It's, it's super cheap because I know the salt beats the crap out of it. Um, so I got a, the brand is framed. It was like a five, $600 fat bike um, that I can just beat the heck out of it. Um, I replace the chain every year and then, you know, kind of whatever happens, happens. And then I have a, a nicer road bike and a nicer gravel bike. Uh, so sometimes I, I put the studded tires in the gravel bike for if it's icy. 
uh, ride the fat bike if it's snowy, but I got a, a couple options. I've been on the fat bike lately. Fat bike lately, I find it comfortable. Um, I like that it's a little bit slower roll, so it makes my commute a little bit longer. Um, and I kind of like that extra time. Does your wife have a car? Nope. No, we are we are a carless family. Um, and you know, well, the, there's inconveniences about it. I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, once in a blue moon, we'll take a Lyft or an Uber somewhere. Um, but I enjoy you know the convenience actually of we walk to the grocery store. Uh, it gets us more you know, time together when we like walk to the store on the weekends and that kind of thing. Um, so I see so many, so many benefits to it uh, that I, I definitely would not change it. If you gave me a car, I would sell it right back. So if you were to come visit me, how would you, what, what would you do? Oh, I'd, oh, I'd fly to Milwaukee. I don't want to drive that far anyway. Okay. <laughs> what if you're going to go visit Kirk? <laughs> um, True, 40 minutes. I would consider biking or just take a lift. Um, there's been a couple of times I've taken a, a few lifts in a month and it still comes out to be less than most people's car insurance payment, you know? I, yeah. I mean, my, my, my parents bike or walk 90% of where they go my entire life. So it's not weird to me, but I just, I don't know many young people who do that. Yeah. Well, I, I really enjoy it. And the reason we did it is like, we have such a, a good convenient lifestyle living in the city and walking everywhere that my car was just sitting like, mm. and so then we started renting it out on an app and then like we rented it out for a while and mm-hmm. like, we haven't even driven my car in like three years. Let's just get, let's just get rid of it. Uh, so yeah, it's been great. You, I guess, disappeared from my, my life for a little bit, Alec. And, and then you started popping up in Google searches for me. Really? When I, when I, yeah, when I get a, an athlete question or a task, let's say world's toughest mutter or a 24 hour race. Or I want to do this while still doing this. Just something that's a little more outside my realm. I come up with what I would do. And then I research it, cross-check it against everything that anyone else has ever put together for something like that. And then if I have an idea that I consider a novel idea, I Google the associated styles that would apply somewhere else. And you just kept popping up. Really? So yeah, this year you started again. I had a, I had more people train for world's toughest this year than I've had in several years. And so I was doing writing plans. And every, every time I would, like I, I started Googling um, treadmill walking um, resistance bands, things, things like that to try to think of what, what ways could I get people to just get more out of their workouts or um, how how many miles can you walk in 24 hours? Just different things like that. Trying to figure out what's, what's the, the way that we can get people to get their 50 or their 70 miles and in, in a normal life. And you had a blog on one and you had a blog on the other. And then I started going through your bloggers again. And I realized this is a guy I would be okay outsourcing my training to. Like, I know you're not racing anymore, but it hasn't stopped your mind from coming up with very unique ways to approach training. That's a, a huge compliment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean it. Like, I, I read a lot of blogs. I read a lot of research papers. I read a lot of books. And usually I have to pick pieces that I like. Sometimes with some people, I can go back to their stuff whenever I need something. And yours is one of that, where I don't have to discard like a bunch of trash and keep the, like, the one gem I like with yours. Everything I read, I, I just find myself saying, yeah, that makes sense. I like 
Well, that's awesome. That's awesome to hear. I, I know I should write more. You know, when you mentioned the, the blogs, it's like a little stake in my heart. I'm like, I know that I should write more. There's things I want to write about. It's one of those things that's like, it's so far at the bottom of the priority list. It's like, yeah. I know I, I got I got to move it up. I got to get some more content out there, but I'm glad that someone's out there enjoying it. Well, most blogs are, you get 500 words in and people are highlighting a couple of their phrases and putting it up in the middle of a paragraph because they think you really want to see it. And you leave knowing not much more than the title already explained to you. Yeah. And I, and I like that yours just like have a purpose. They get to the point, they explain it through and they leave you thinking, yeah, okay, I can see that. And I'll probably research this more. So we in throughout this coaches series have asked a series of questions to coaches and asked them all the same questions. And it's not like a debate format. If we think you're wrong, we're just going to say, huh, okay, <laughs> and move on. And if we think you're right, we're going to say, yeah, that's, that's cool. We think that too. But the purpose is to give athletes the ability in this off-season time to glean some information, maybe re-up their own personal style of training, maybe find their new coach that they're looking for, or maybe just round out their vision of of what works for them. But we've mm-hmm. had people who promote high mileage. We've had people that don't think strength training is important for runners. We have all sorts of style. And, and I want to move into that section now to get to what I believe is like, despite your story being awesome, we could talk about that all day. I think right here and right now, this is the most important part that people will have from this. That's fun. It sounds like I'm going on the game show. So let's do it. Kind of like we generally don't do scripted Q and A's, but like this very much will be question and answer format. Cool. Let's go for it. And if we hit tangents along the way, that's fine. <laughs> we don't mind going off. Yeah, that'll be fun. Of course. I will preface this with just to build some recent credibility as again, I was creeping on your social media. I mean, in the same breath, you ran 40 miles and I don't know why for fun, maybe around Lake Calhoun or one of the lakes. Yeah. And then your next video, maybe you posting proper RDL form or something uh, looking super jacked. Like you live both ends of the spectrum right now, not only on your bike and with your job, but like, through and through, I feel like you got your toe in the endurance world still. You got another toe or foot or your whole body in the strength world. And it's like, it's like you're living it and you're still practicing both ends. Is that correct? Like, that's how it looks anyways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I absolutely, you know, live the light lifestyle for sure. Um, the only, you know, possible correction to that statement is the 40 miler I did. I was very ill prepared for, um, <laughs> but I got it done nevertheless. Um, it was actually probably the toughest ultra I've ever had to run. Um, just being as, as ill prepared as I was in terms of my running mileage lately to go out there and run 13 laps around the lake right next to my apartment, knowing that I could be done at any moment should I decide to be done was just mental anguish. <laughs> um, but yes, I did just recently run 40 miles within the 48 hours of that. I was, I was squatting, uh, you know, double body weight back squats within 48 hours of that 40 mile run, which I thought was pretty cool to, to recover that quickly. Uh, so yeah, definitely still putting a toe on both sides. Now, is this the one that you just did solo because you felt like you should race an ultra and there wasn't one around or something? <laughs> so this was part of the, uh, the CHP crucible competition, which, which could be an entire discussion. I don't want to derail us too much. Uh, give us broad strokes and then we'll decide from there. Okay. Um, so as you know, CHP 
we're a coaching company that uh, we target a lot of hybrid athletes. Like, like I mentioned, the 5K powerlifters or 5K or a powerlifter marathon runner, uh, blend military, obstacle racing, all that kind of stuff. Um, so they had an idea that they wanted to put together an event that would really test who is the best all around hybrid athlete uh, in a way that's probably a little bit more um, more well-rounded than something like the CrossFit Games, for example. Because uh, while the CrossFit Games claim to, to have the fittest in earth, it's still a fairly narrow range of athletic ability in terms of strength and, and power and time domain and all that kind of stuff. Um, so the, the Crucible had four different events um, that were designed to span as wildly different components of athleticism as possible. Um, so on the, the heaviest side, there was a super total, which is your squat, bench, deadlift, clean and jerk, and snatch. One rep max, all five of those added together. Um, also on kind of the shorter side of things, there was a 30-second bike sprint, so a Wingate test um, for max power. On the other side of things, there was a six-hour run for distance, and then there was 30 minutes worth of uh, kettlebell sport-style one-arm long cycle, which is 30 minutes of kettlebell clean and jerk without setting it down. If you set it down, it's over. Um, so those were the four events, bike sprint, super total, six-hour run, and long cycle with the kettlebell. Uh, and it was scored points style, so first place was one point, second place two points, et cetera, and then you know, sum up the points, lowest one wins. Um, so we had over 100 competitors for the inaugural Crucible, uh, and I was able to pull off a win. Uh, so I was first place on the run, um, second place in the kettlebell long cycle, and then I think fifth place each on the super total and the bike sprint, uh, which was good enough for an overall win. So in theory, the six-hour run cancels out the total. Exactly. And then it comes down to the middle two. Right. And the, the kettlebell long cycle, I think, caught a lot of people off guard. Uh, it's not something that a lot of people are very practiced at, and I know I wasn't myself. Uh, and it doesn't sound as bad as it is. Um, so the, the heavy division, or the, the pro division, as we called it, was kettlebell clean and jerks with the 32-kilogram kettlebell, which is 70-ish pounds or so. Uh, which if you're, you know, a pretty strong guy, you think about doing some clean and jerks with 70, doesn't sound awful, uh, but it really is. <laughs> it really is terrible. And you can't 30 minutes? It. it sounds terrible. Without touching the ground? Like Without this. touching the ground, you can't, like, rest it on your, your shoulder or your hip. Like, you, you've got to stay in an active position the whole time. It's miserable. It's absolutely miserable. Uh, and I think that one cut a lot of people off. How many people made the 30 minutes out of curiosity? Like even just made the time. I think in the the guys just won. Um, the guy that won made it the full thirty, and his main sport is kettlebell sport. So he's a kettlebell athlete, uh, which is why he was able to do it. Who is this? Uh, his name is um, Ross Gilbert. Uh, he's just okay. a he's a kettlebell sport dude. So he made it the full thirty minutes and won that one. And then I was in second, and I did my reps. I think in like. 13, 14 minutes or something like that. And I had enough. Uh, and that was still good enough for a second. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. That is wild. You're right. We could talk about that all day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a fun event. It was really cool. Is that going on again this year? Yeah. So it's, it's, we're trying to make it kind of our, our flagship event. Uh, we have some, some training templates for it. Uh, we have coaching packages for it, all that kind of stuff. It's a great all around test of athleticism. If you can get good at the crucible, I can't think of much you wouldn't be good at. Cool. I interrupted you, Bracken. No, I'm I'm trying to comprehend 
30 minutes of 70 pound kettlebell work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, shall we move into the questions? Do you want to yeah. move into the questions? Yeah. Most guests we've had on, we've had a good idea of what their answer is going to be. And I don't with yours. And I like that. Should be fun. I, I don't know. I don't know what the questions are, but let's go for it. No, no one gets them beforehand. <laughs> Only I know. And it's very official, Alec. As you can see by my <laughs> illegible penmanship. Oh, it's great. Um, um, okay, we'll uh, we'll start with a few philosophy questions. Um, these are very elementary and broad, so it can facilitate discussion. But it, some of them are like, okay, it's a simple question, but uh, we might dive in a little bit. So, like, tangents are kind of welcome, right, Bracken? I would say once we get into the, you know, always May, that might be like if we had a byline. <laughs> Tangents are <laughs> running public. It would be tangents are welcome here. Okay, so first uh, of the philosophy questions, um, we'll be right up your your wheelhouse, and I have an idea what you're going to say, but I'm curious of the nuances. Um, what is your philosophy on strength training, as far as endurance athletes and performance goes? Good question. Um, I think the the simple answer is all else being equal a stronger runner is going to be a better runner. But the nuance is that not all else is equal. Um, there's a significant, you know, recovery cost, training time cost, just a lot of resources that go into strength training. And the more resources you put into strength training, the less resources you have for everything else. So it becomes a matter of how strong can I get, how much time and energy can, can I devote to strength training without making compromises, right? Um, so there's obviously only so so big you want to get in terms of um, just the weight you have to carry around, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I find the biggest limiting factor for people is simply going to be their ability to still do all of their run training with the quality they need um, without letting the amount of strength training they're doing detract from that, that training quality or their ability to recover. Um, I don't think most people need a super huge base of strength in terms of lifting six days per week, like I do for an hour or so, a little bit goes a long way. <clears throat> a little bit goes a long way. But I would say anytime I want to figure out what's optimal or what is an optimal level of strength or endurance, I just look to the people who are the best in the world at it. So when you look at some of the best marathon runners in the world or best 5K athletes in the world and ask how strong are they um, and get an idea of where is their strength compared to yours, it's then a little bit simpler to think, am I strong enough? Um, so if you are significantly weaker, you know, on a kind of pound for pound basis than some of the world's best endurance athletes, it probably makes sense that if, if you get closer to their level of strength, that's going to be a benefit. If you're already way stronger, for example, than some of the world's best endurance athletes, continuing to get even stronger than that probably doesn't, doesn't make sense at that point. Um, so I would use that. I'm quick question. On this. Yeah. I just want to clarify, are you saying that you look to the specific sport in your style of running? Like would a would marathoners apply to 5K or are you like, if you want to run a 10K, look to 10K or if you want to run OCR, look to OCR. Is there just, just like in general, I want to be clear because people yeah. will take it a different way. You know, if you compare, say like some of the world's best 10K athletes, some of the world's best half marathon athletes, they're the same athlete. Like if you're running a world-class 10K, you're running a world-class half marathon that kind of thing. There's going to be a, a, some, you know, specialization component in terms of, you know, where do you really shine in terms of those events. But when we're looking at professional runners across the entire 5K to marathon spectrum, we're going to be seeing fairly 
I don't want to say too similar because even in that group, there's going to be some some significant differences in terms of their strengths. Um, but just looking at an, a big picture overview of how strong are those people can give you an idea of how strong you should be if you want to be good at, at that. Um, looking at obstacle racing specifically, that's going to be totally different. So looking at some of the people who are best in the sport of obstacle racing, look at your Ryan Atkins, your Hunters, your uh, your Matt Kempsons, whatever, Isaiah Vidal's, like there's a, a lot of different types of athletes and I just listed some very different athletes there on purpose because some of them are much stronger at certain movements than others. And it's not to say that you have to be as strong as Hunter, for example, at back squatting. But when you look at overall the, the kind of average athlete that rises to the top in the sport of OCR, you can think about how strong are they? So if you're at home and you realize that your strength is is way below that of your your Atkins and your Kempsons and, and those people, then you would probably know I need to step it up a little bit. If you're at home with a triple body weight squat thinking I need to make sure I'm still squatting for Spartan Race, you're probably okay. <laughs> your time might be best spent elsewhere if that's what you're truly trying to optimize. Uh, so that's kind of how I would tackle it just in, in looking at is it really going to be a limiting factor for you or not based on is it a limiting factor versus the best of the best. I like that. And how do you find, it's easy to find OCR. It's harder to find, like if you're looking for ultra or trail or road, do you have some numbers you found? Where do you source these out? It's really difficult actually. Um, and you, you certainly can't find, you can't just like look up um, Jim Walmsley back squat PR. Like it's not really just something that's, that's out there. Um, especially <laughs> maybe, maybe, um, you know, that's not always information that's, that's out there per individual. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you do, and especially considering a lot of them train very differently, and you certainly don't say even have to back squat in general, we're talking more about just what is your your quad strength. And there's a lot of different ways you could, could measure that. Um, so, you know, following a lot of athletes like that in a wide range of sports, um, especially those that choose to share a little bit more about their training and some of that, get an idea for what type of workout do these people do? Um, what is their fitness level at different things? Um, looking at articles that some other coaches have put out about some of the best athletes that they train and, and some of that kind of stuff. Um, so sometimes you're hearing it secondhand or, or thirdhand. Um, so, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt. And you're like, okay, but what is their depth on that? And, and that kind of thing. Um, but just getting a, a big picture or general idea of what are the workouts that some of these, you know, phenomenal athletes are doing should shed should shed some light on what you might want to do too. I like that. What about um, the nuance of you mentioned, well, yeah, it's a balancing act about time spent and versus reward and what you need. And then you have to factor recovery in from strength work, which you don't want to impact your run work too much, um, which all makes sense, of course. But then you talk about separating upper and lower. Do you believe that upper body strength work still significantly impacts your ability to run versus lower body? Let's say you do an overhead and a grip day and a pull strength day, leaving the rear chain below the waist out of it. Um, do you feel like that factors in or does it not, in your opinion? Yeah, so I'm, your your arms move when you run for a reason. Like It's not like you're running with your hands tied behind your back. You know, So upper body musculature does play a role in, in efficient gait economy and that kind of thing. What sufficient upper body strength looks like is going to be different for a lot of people when you think about your your unique uh, kind of body proportions how much weight do you have in your upper body versus your lower body um, that kind of stuff is all going to impact the mechanics of your gait 
how much your upper body is involved and what is an extra pound of mass going to do in terms of counterbalance or how is your shoulder not fatiguing and influence uh, what's going on at your hip. Uh, so a lot of the stuff like say when your shoulder internally, your X-linger rotates, that has a significant contribution or effect neurologically on internal and external rotation at the hip. Uh, a lot of these kind of neurologically mediated phenomenon that goes on between contralateral limbs and gait becomes really important when you start talking about upper body fatigue and how that affects what's going on down below. So when you fail, for example, to maintain core stability, shoulder integrity, and you start kind of just crossing your body and throwing your arms across, that's going to have a detrimental impact on what's going on uh, with your gait, potential crossover gait or, or whatever. Um, so it doesn't have to be much, but if you're just completely ignoring your upper body from a, a gait perspective, that's probably not a good idea. Does that mean you need to be just doing a bunch of, of bicep curls and, and skull crushers or something like that? No, uh, but incorporating some you know, kind of functional, if you will, upper body and, and core work uh, from a gait perspective, I think would be really helpful for any runner. Uh, of course, when you start talking about obstacle racing and that kind of sport, there's a whole host of other strength demands with, with obstacles and that kind of thing, which is totally different. I read a study about running economy of influences from the upper body. And they found that when restricting arms to behind the back, they tied arms together loosely behind the back. The average runner lost three to 6% running economy. So does that speak more to the lack of need to derive power from the upper body or the standard runner's inability to derive power from the upper body? Are you taking that to mean that that three three to six percent detriment is is not significant, or uh, clarify just a little bit? Uh, I would say that it seems insignificant, not from a time perspective, but from a movement perspective. From the if you can restrict movement of the upper body and lose single digit running economy, not running time, running economy, that it seems. That it, it, I mean, it, it's one or the other. It's either that we don't need upper body to generate a whole lot of force in our running, or runners are inherently so frail and weak that we don't have a good way of doing it. <laughs> um, I would really just come back at that and say I'm, a couple of things. One, if you're only measuring something's impact on your running in terms of the effect on running economy, I don't think you're going to get the full picture. You know, when you look at how does different footwear affect running economy, how does different mm -hmm. uh, supplementation or training programs that ever affect running economy, you may see very, very small, you know, seemingly insignificant changes to efficiency that doesn't mean it doesn't have impacts on overall power and, and that kind of thing. There's definitely a, a learned efficiency where I think change your mechanics and you can still be efficient doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be powerful, right? So when you take away the upper body, you may just have single digit losses in terms of efficiency, I'd be willing to bet that it's double digit losses in terms of overall power, if that makes sense. Um, because you need that upper body to counter the torsion from the, the hips. And so if you just dial that back to where you can still counter that torsion just with torso rotation without movement of the arms, that would certainly be possible. You're just gonna be limited in how much torque you can actually produce in the lower body. So I think it's gonna be a bigger you know, the bigger question is what's the power loss, not what's the economy loss, if that makes sense. Oh, I like it. I like that. I'm also curious how they measured efficiency. Was it like 
leg biomechanics or was it? No, it's like, a, how, how do you got to be a cardiovascular? You think just some sort of cardiovascular metabolic measurements? Yeah, it's got to be metabolic measurements. Mm. I, I don't I don't have the study memorized, but it was yeah. it was an intriguing one because I looked at it and thought, well, yeah, take a look at half the Ethiopian runners out there and they carry their hands and they never drop below their shoulders. <laughs> yeah, the, the high hand punt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then you look at a middle distance runner and you would say they generate a ton of force from their upper body and they, you know, mm. in quote unquote, go to the the arms when they fatigue. But no, I, I had less of an opinion. I was more curious about what Alex's response to that was. Hmm. So you said something earlier that was, I think, very good. We've never spent this much time on this question. But again, this is part of why I wanted your opinion on these, because you've spent more time thinking about this than some of the other guests. You said, and that doesn't mean you need to back squat. It's more about what your quad power is, not what you can put out on a back squat. Right. And I like that a lot. And it's, it's almost an impossible question because everyone wants a quick answer, but what is, do you have a golden exercise for judging how much quad power you need as a runner to be functionally competent or is it, does it vary? That's a, that's a really good question. Uh, on the one hand, there's people like to think of just muscles as these, uh, these single things with single abilities, right? Like you have a quad and it makes it, it has a certain amount of strength, Right. And I think it's a very narrow, narrow approach to what muscles do in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your ability to absorb force is different than your ability to produce force, your ability to produce and absorb force at different speeds, at different directions, at different joint angles. All that stuff is, is totally different. So when you look and assess someone's quad strength, uh, you know, in quotes there with a back squat, how much does that tell you about their their quads ability to to eccentrically control the descent of a of a steep downhill run? It probably doesn't tell you a whole lot at all. Um, so there are certain exercises that I would look at. I'm just get a, a big picture idea of where someone's quad strength is at, but it's not going to give me nearly as much information as like actually watching their gait and seeing where where are things going right or wrong. Where are they fatiguing and, and some of that kind of stuff um, to figure out are they limited more aerobically or biomechanically or kind of what's going on. Um, in terms of the, the squat in particular, it's a great exercise. Um, nothing against squats, but there's so many other ways to develop quad strength in similar positions that if you can't squat or don't want to squat or don't have the, the equipment availability to squat or whatever, there's so many other ways you can get the same benefits. Um, it's not by any means a requirement for runners. So what's one you would say every runner has to do blank? I know that's a BuzzFeed article, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, every runner needs to strengthen their quad. <laughs> uh, and every <laughs> runner, I think, should pay special attention to training the quad in more of a, a short position where you get more uh, vastus medialis engagement. Um, so that kind of teardrop muscle that, that gives you that nice V-notch above your knee, that lower inner quad, uh, I find often gets neglected and sometimes undertrained just with the traditional like back squat program, for example. Because uh, that VMO, as we call it, is primarily responsible for the kind of end range of, of knee extension. And by the time you're getting to the top of a squat, it's a pretty easy movement, right? Like a squat is kind of tougher down in the bottom position and the middle position, pretty easy to stand up just because of the, the leverages. Um, 
So sometimes that VMO doesn't work very hard in the squat, but it's a very, very important muscle for knee stability uh, and the kind of impact absorption. Um, so making sure you're doing something that trains the quad in that lengthened position, uh, I'm sorry, in the shortened position to hit the VMO, I think is important just for knee health for runners. Uh, if you do go to, say, physical therapy for a classic runner's knee, you may be prescribed some rehabilitative exercises that target the VMO. Uh, but if you get a step ahead of it, make sure you're targeting that in the gym. That goes a, a long way. Uh, and that's just for starters. That's, I think, a big myth that people have in the traditional strength program. Well, you got to give us those exercises now. <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of, of some kind of split squat variation in a program. Um, I'm generally a fan of using some kind of variable or accommodating resistance, uh, meaning some sort of either band setup or machine setup that allows for the resistance profile to change through the exercise um, so that we're not ending up with a situation like the squat where it's tough at the bottom and in the middle, but by the time you're at the top, you're not really hitting that VMO anymore. Leveraging some accommodating resistance can be a, an effective strategy to kind of get the whole picture, so to speak, in terms of providing more even challenge across the range of motion of an exercise, uh, especially if you're more limited in the number of exercises you can do. Um, if you've got all the time in the world and you can be like, okay, well, I'm just going to do this short quad exercise and this linking position exercise, whatever, more, more power to you. Um, but if you're like most runners and you want to spend as little time in the gym as possible, being a little bit more efficient and thoughtful of kind of what is the resistance profile? How does that resistance profile line up against the, the force production potential of the target musculature? Uh, I think is one way that you can just be more efficient with your time. Okay. I like it. Yeah, we preach the, the split squat heavily here. Philosophy, this is super vague, on treadmill use as far as fitness applications for endurance athletes. Depends on what type of endurance athlete you are in terms of are you more of a, you know, a rhythm runner where you're going to be going out and just pounding the pavement for stride after stride versus do you need to be a little more adaptable in terms of change of direction and, and uh you know, more frequent course changes with elevation and that kind of thing. By and large, I think the biomechanical differences between treadmill and overground running are far overstated. Um, just from a you know, relativity perspective, in terms of what is your reference frame, uh, overground and treadmill running are essentially the same, um, you know, depending on your frame of reference. Uh, some of the big differences, of course, arise from lack of drag factor and then a lot of neurological stuff. Your, your brain usually is kind of reconciling the movement of your surroundings as you move forward, where when you're on the treadmill, you have a very different set of neurological inputs in the sense that nothing is moving. So your brain is kind of thinking, okay, I'm moving, but am I? <laughs> uh, and that can kind of play some, some tricks on your perception, uh, which I think can lead to some of the very subtle biomechanical differences we may see with uh, like lean and, and stride length and, and some things like that, but they tend to be very, very subtle. Um, and by and large, I don't, I see it as more or less a non-issue for most people. So if you were predominantly a trailer OCR athlete and you had access to all the terrain the heart could ever desire, AKA like the mountains, would you eliminate the treadmill completely or is there still a time and place? There's still a time and place for, for most training tools if you can come up with a, a use for it. Uh, I think one of the advantages of the treadmill, of course, is the fact that it does some, some pacing for you uh, and that you have very close control over the speed and the incline at, at all times to kind of 
force yourself into the workout you want to do um, and have that element of consistency. So the nice thing about, for example, weightlifting is you go and you load the same exact amount of weight on the bar every time. Um, so you go and you do 100 pounds this week. If you know you want to lift a little bit heavier, you know how to put 105 on there or whatever it is. With running, it can be a little bit weird because you go out and you're like, okay, well, the weather's a little bit warmer today. It's a little bit windier in this direction or, or whatever. And sometimes it's harder to get that sense of, of repeatability, uh, which there's some elements to that that are good. You know, it's, it's an unpredictable sport. You don't know what the conditions are going to be on race day. Uh, but for certain workouts where you want to be really methodical about your progression, having more of a controlled environment certainly has its, its time and place. Uh, and using that forced pacing to keep yourself in an interval a little bit longer than you might be outdoors, where you know outside you might start to back off or fade in terms of your pace, where on the treadmill you get to kind of grind through it a little bit longer in some cases. I think there's a time and place for that too. I agree. Still on mute, sir, podcast expert. Oh, there we are. <laughs> Let's say you are the prototypical trail-based runner. You're going to run an ultra, you're going to run a trail half, whatever it is. What is the minimum number of times you feel they should be outdoors per week in order to not leave something on the table? Say I'm a treadmill-based runner who's going to race off-road. What 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 is the minimum shift between the two, that balance? To really answer that question, we'd have to talk about the, the timing in terms of when your event is. So if you're talking about, can I train all winter long on just a treadmill for this big race in the spring? I'd say, sure, knock yourself out. You could run exclusively on the treadmill for a couple months. As long as we have a transition period pre-race to like get you back out on the trail, get you back out over ground for a couple weeks to kind of readapt and readjust to that change in surface. I think that would be fine. So you could potentially run the treadmill for a really long time with no outdoor time if you had to, um, especially if it was going to be more productive than more productive training than say going out on the, the snow and ice and un, potentially unsafe conditions or unproductive conditions, right? So there's definitely a time and place where we might say, yeah, you're going to be a treadmill runner for a while, but ideally we would have at least some sort of training phase where we get you back out on your, your competition surface for a little bit. Um, if you're talking about ongoing you know can i run in the treadmill forever and literally never step foot outside that i'd say you're you're leaving something on the table um a lot of kind of the uh tendon stiffness and some of that kind of stuff gets optimized to the surface you train on so if you're training on a treadmill and then you're competing on grass for example that's not going to line up super super well so hopefully you're getting some time on, on competition surface especially in those final you know four to six weeks or so leading up to it and, and this isn't on our schedule, but I'm curious your thoughts on this. What has a quicker turnaround time? Running all soft terrain and having to quick get used to pavement or running all pavement and having to quick get used to soft terrain? I think running on all soft terrain and then having to quickly get used to harder terrain would come a little bit easier. I have zero research to back that up, but that would be my kind of anecdotal experience. Yeah. All right, next philosophy question. I'm interested to hear based on one of the comments Bracken made earlier. Um, what's your philosophy on shoes? <laughs> what, do you, what do you live by there, sir? Man, you're, you're trying to get me some hate mail now. I feel like when you start talking about footwear, you're going to piss people off. Uh, well, 
Brack, look at Bracken's backdrop, and he hasn't pissed anybody off uh, <laughs> that we know of. So, not about this. <laughs> I I often think of, of footwear as one of those. You know, people love to ask the question, "What do you think about my shoe?" Like they ask you about the shoe they're currently wearing. Do you think this is a good idea? It's like, well, what do you think? How does it feel? Uh, chances are, if you feel good, if you're comfortable in your shoe, if you're not hurting in your shoe, it's probably not a bad shoe. Um, that being said, in terms of what are some of the training benefits you can get from different types of footwear, um, there's definitely some adaptations to be had from intentionally wearing certain type of footwear. For example, using a more minimalist, flat, or, or neutral shoe for some speed or agility work or turnover work, I think can be very beneficial in terms of running economy, wearing something with a little bit more cushion when you're hitting the pavement, especially for longer durations can just help you get a little bit more time on your feet, a little bit more volume with a little bit less wear and tear. Um, so I think it's beneficial to have more than one pair of shoes, more than one style of shoes, depending on the workout. Uh, I think that's the most... And hate mail reduction has <laughs> gone down by at least half. That's, a, that's the most important thing you can do is, is don't stick to just one style of footwear. You know, have your different options and know why you're using them. Uh, just like I always draw parallels to, to the strength side of things, I squat in an elevated heel... I deadlift in a flat shoe. Um, having two different footwears for two different exercises, knowing how can I get the best bang for my buck out of each, that same line of reasoning applies to running too. What's your workout? What are you trying to get out of it? That's a great analogy right there. Mm-hmm. What about you personally? What do you gravitate towards? So I, I gravitate towards very neutral, kind of minimal shoes. Um, I like Ultra, which I don't know if Bracken has a pair of Ultras back in the wall there. Not on the wall, but in the basement. <laughs> uh, so like the, the Ultra Escalante is kind of my go-to for pavement running. Um, when I'm in on trails, uh, especially just training on trails, I usually go to like Vivo Barefoot, something fairly minimal. Um, when I'm racing, I'll get a little bit more cushion or maybe a, a slight, uh, very slight heel and like an Innovate or something like that. Um, my ankle mobility is not as great as I would like it to be. And I find that um, sometimes having a slight heel lift uh, on a race with a, a lot of climbing, for example, can take a little strain off my calf. Uh, so I have a, a couple of different, different options. I'm almost exclusively zero drop uh, minus uh, maybe, you know, five millimeter drop or so and some innovates from time to time. I didn't steal your thunder with that question, Bracken. No, no, I think it's healthy to come from someone other than me. that's fair um all right tell me like it is here alec if you want to be performing your best as an endurance athlete let's say 5k and beyond how many days a week do you need to be running and how many days a week do you need to be doing strength work i'll answer the strength portion first um when we think about how do we make progress in the gym um and and really this applies to any type of workout uh, but I like to think about the stress recovery adaptation curve. So you apply a stress or you do a workout and it takes a certain amount of time to recover from that workout, adapt from that workout and be ready for another stressor, right? Obviously, if you apply too large of a stressor, you're never going to get that super compensation effect. If you apply too small of a stressor, again, it's not going to be enough to, to be much good. And when we look at strength training, if we apply a sufficiently demanding stressor that you're going to get that recovery and adaptation process, you're generally looking at like a 48 to 72 hour window in which you're going to recover, adapt, and be ready to be stressed again. If you give yourself too long of a gap 
between stressors or between workouts, you're more or less just going to be maintaining in the sense that you're, you have that stressor, you have the, the recovery and adaptation, and then you start detraining again. And so if you allow 10 days to pass between each of your squat workouts, you're not going to get any worse at squatting, but you're probably not going to get that much better past some very initial and subtle newbie gains, right? So when we think about that 48 to 72 hour kind of stress recovery adaptation curve or SRA curve, it kind of forces this two to three time per week training frequency in terms of how often are we stressing a particular muscle group. Um, else we're not going to make that much progress to begin with. That doesn't mean that you have to go do some crazy huge workout two to three times a week. But if you're at least doing something, just applying some small stressor around that training frequency, that's probably going to get you a lot more bang for your buck. And you'll probably have to actually do less training overall than if you were trying to get that same benefit from just once a week of training. Uh, so from a strength training perspective, think about what muscles are you trying to work, what patterns are you trying to develop, try to get those in twice a week or so, and that will be sufficient to get you, you know, quite a lot of gains compared to anything less than that. Um, so that would be my starting point. And then in terms of total days that you're actually in the gym, you could divide out your routine based on how much time you want to spend per workout, that kind of thing. Do you do full body training twice a week? Do you do lower body, upper body for four sessions? Whatever. Uh, but the most important thing is you're getting that kind of twice a week training frequency for each muscle group. Um, you could go up and down a little bit from there, but I think that's a, a sweet spot and a good starting point. Uh, does that side make sense before I talk about the cardio? Anyone who mentions SRA is is touching upon the right thing. So I'm cool with that. So you're saying though, I mean, like if you have a really, if you have a well thought out strength routine and you say, I can carve out 75 minutes twice a week and I get in there and I get to work and I do relevant work and I give uh, purposeful stimulus to the areas that need stimulus twice a week, we can get away with, or maybe four shorter sessions, potentially splitting it up. But like two would be adequate if it's, if it's a well thought out too. Absolutely. For, for someone that, you know, you're interested in running performance, you could definitely get away with twice sure. a week in the gym and get, get everything that you needed out of it, I think. Okay, just clarifying. Yeah, and then um, on the, the endurance side of things, um, it really depends on where you're at in your athletic development in terms of what type of volume do you need. Uh, if you're talking about someone that's just getting into running, you might have someone make great strides and great progress on, on weekly mileage of less than 20, um, and they might divide that into three runs, four runs, whatever, and, and that would be sufficient. If you're talking about someone that has gone through a, a decade progression of 20-mile weeks and then 30-mile weeks, now they're running 90-mile weeks, they might be doing 10 to 12 training sessions a week um, to get in that volume and maintain their quality throughout it. So I think in terms of training frequency for the endurance side of things, I think it heavily depends on you know your overall athletic background and where you are in your development. I think that people can get more progress and get a lot better at running than they might think on three runs per week. I've seen people get really like freaky good at running at just three times per week. I don't think that that can be a, a forever solution for, for certain people, for certain, you know, uh, people at a, a certain stage in development, but I think it can be a good solution for a lot. Okay. So if you took away training experience and you took away stressors of life, and you had to say for the vast majority of moderately 
trained runners, what would your breakdown be for a week? For kind of the, the, the average person that, that can devote the time, but maybe, you know, fairly novice to intermediate, I would say two quality strength training sessions in three to four runs, uh, potentially like a, a speed, a tempo or recovery and a longer aerobic effort. That's a pretty solid program that's going to meet most people's basic needs, um, you know, outside of, you know, niche cases. Okay. I like that. Next question. Have you been standing this entire time? Yes, I have. Are you a, a stand all day, no matter what guy? No. Um, and in fact, I probably would have been sitting if I had known that we weren't using video. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I probably would have stayed in my, in my apartment. Um, it was just like messy and not great background, but I, I could have done it there and sat down. But actually, and to, to answer your question, actually, I don't have any chairs in my house, uh, which is somewhat intentional by design. Um, I do prefer like floor sitting and kneeling and, and stuff as opposed to just a typical chair. I sit a little bit in a chair at work and that's good enough for me. I just got a nice new sectional delivered to my living room yesterday, Alec. <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> I, so if you're, if you're trying to rest, I find lying down a far more restored position than, than sitting. I would much rather like, so I have a, a like semi home theater set up where I get to lay down and, and watch Netflix or whatever. I find that much more relaxing than, than sitting in a, a chair for the same thing. Yeah. You're just living it, man. You really are living it. These little nuggets you keep dropping. Just, I, I'm like a little envious here. For some <laughs> um, I mean, ad, ad, admiration. Crafted every little section of your life towards what you want it to be, haven't you? I have. I, I think about, I think about a lot of things, but I try to keep it um, enjoyable and add as much like flexibility and enjoyment to it as possible rather than get obsessive and weird. Mm. It's a fine line. Yeah. <laughs> I, I fight that yeah. battle every day. Just the weird thing, right? Oh. Well, there's, there's so many like training hacks and, and whatnot, like between biohacking and weird, just weird stuff. Um, I'm always of the, the opinion, like if you, if you like it, <laughs> if you feel that it adds to your life or makes things easier, that's, it's, that's probably good. If it's something you're like forcing yourself to do, or you're like waking up 10 minutes early to sit in your red light sauna or something like that's just weird to me. Um, uh, I think there's much easier and more enjoyable ways to get some of those benefits. You doing any bee hole tanning? <laughs> that's exactly what I'm talking about right there. <laughs> Even Alec. Wait, wait, wait. If it's enjoyable for me, it's not weird, right? You know, if if you find that that fits into your lifestyle really well and you enjoy it, I'm not going to tell you not to. Bracken could just use a fence in his backyard. <laughs> my, my parents are my next door neighbors. Oh God! So. <laughs> They've already seen it, Bracken. They've already seen it for at least the first twelve years not of your since life. I've been squatting. <laughs> you can take care of yourself. All right, let's move on. <laughs> Anyways, um, I'm going to have to jump around just a little bit to uh, the ones I want to get to because I want to make sure we're respectful of the time here. Um, We talked about volume a little bit, uh, what people are ready for. So I'm going to paint you a picture, Kate. Um, The the goal is to race your best between a 5K and a marathon distance. Road, trail, OCR, doesn't matter. Okay, that is the goal. You have two options. You can run a limiter of 20 miles a week. And you can run all the quality work your heart desires, tempo, threshold, intervals, spicy stuff, hill repeats, whatever you want. Or you can run unlimited volume. The sky is the limit. 
but you can never surpass, let's say, three beats. Uh, you can never even come within three beats of threshold, lactate threshold. You got to stay under threshold in a clear manner in training at all times. But you can run as many miles as you care to, or 20 miles a week, unlimited fancy stuff. What are you doing and why? How far out is the race? Indefinitely. Uh, the rest of your life, this is all you can rest do. Your li- <laughs> yeah, rest of your life. Um, <laughs> don't, don't tell me two weeks and then I'm doing spicy stuff. That's not the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so there's, there's part of me that wants to give a more nuanced answer, and part of me that's like, give an indefinite amount of time, higher volume than 20 is, is probably going to pay off more in the long run than staying underneath 20 forever. Um, that being said, a lot of things uh, come into play here, like training background prior to starting this program. For example, if you're talking about an athlete that they've been doing that high volume plan for five years, and then they come to you asking for coaching, and they're like, hey, I'm at a plateau, I'm stuck. They're like, well, let's try some spicy stuff and see what happens. Uh, and then on the flip side, if you're if if you're getting a, an anaerobic athlete, you know, coming in, you know, like ex-hockey player or something like that, you're like, let's just do some base aerobic work and, and see what happens, at, you know, with that approach. Um, if I knew nothing about the person and this is just like a lottery game, you're like, you got to pick a strategy. I would probably err on the side of that, that volume. Cause I think sub 20 miles per week indefinitely might be a little bit on the low side um, for someone that's trying to be super competitive. Um, not to say you can't do a lot on sub 20 miles a week. We've seen Colby call do that on sub 20 mile weeks. Allegedly. Allegedly. Granted he had some hundred mile weeks earlier in his, his running career. Um, not that it was by any means a, a phenomenal time, but I ran a 250 marathon on like 20 mile training weeks back in 2013. So I mean, you can do some good stuff on, on low volume. Okay. What number would have tempted you? <laughs> what number would have tempted me to go with the, the intensity program? Yeah. Uh, probably just a little bit more like 30, 35. I think given that you'd have a uh, potential to go really quite far. Hmm. I'll add my asterisks now. And that is same scenario, um, but you can supplement the 20 miles per week in quality with uh, unlimited aerobic work and other modalities. What are you picking? Now I feel bad, and I didn't even think of that earlier. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I might have to narrow down the, the training focus if you're talking 5K versus marathon. Um, but I think you're, you're starting to make that more of the clear winner because um, I've seen firsthand what just a, a strong aerobic base on, you know, non-specific uh, training can do for me personally. Um, so I think I would lean towards that. Great. And, and you see that with like, you know, elite level triathletes. Um, some of the times that they can put down on like a half Ironman on, you know, maybe not quite as low as 20, but fairly low, fairly low running volume compared to, you know, an outright half marathon athlete or something like that. So definitely, definitely good things can be done. Now, I'm going to blank on the name. It might be Norgren. I, I forget it, but he's a Norwegian triathlete. He was the half, he was a 70.3 world champ. He just did his debut full Ironman and he closed in 235 on the marathon. I, I saw that. It was like sub eight hour full. Oh. Yeah. Just first marathon. And then <laughs> his compatriot, uh, what's his name? The Olympic champ, the Olympic triathlon champ, just debuted with the fastest Ironman of all time. That's crazy. Like, like these guys are legitimately fast runners. Race, uh, you know, records are going to keep falling. I, I can't help but think that uh, the COVID pandemic has had something to do with a lot of the records we've seen fall in the last year or so. 
people being out of competition and and stuff like that for a while and just hungry to get back at it lately. That's what you talked about. You can race 20 times or you can get better. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right, brother. Your mission is to set somewhere in between a 5K and a marathon world best or at least personal best for your life. All you care about is is achieving your best potential in a distance somewhere in there, okay? You forget about your strength work and how good your booty looks and your squat shorts. All you care about, okay? You got to hire a coach. Who do you put all of your stock in and why? <laughs> Great question. Um, I would I, I really like Steve Magnus a lot. I don't know if you guys have talked about him. Um, yeah. I think if I was just going to go all in on running for a particular distance, I might go with Steve Magnus. Um, I know he has the experience just from the running side of things, which a lot of great coaches do. I really appreciate um, his intellect and the thoughtfulness that he brings to his, his coaching. I know that he's a really great person. Uh, I appreciate some of the personal things that he brings um, brings out on his social media pages and that kind of thing. And I know that he really cares deeply about his athletes. Um, so all of those things together – um, I think he would be my top pick just for straight up running. I may, we talked about blogs before. I may have read his articles more than any singular coaches over the years. It, it, incredibly smart, incredibly informative. Uh, I might have to say the same thing in terms of single authors. I've, I've read more uh, under his name than probably just about anybody else. He's great. And he can write to the everyman, which is always helpful. We had Matt Fitzgerald on a few weeks ago and those two share that ability to understand at a high level and present at a, an intermediate level. It's a tough thing to do for sure. I feel like, uh, and everyone can work at that a little bit, but, uh, I wish I was even better at that skill. You know, I think your writing it captures that. Appreciate that. Writing's like your squat, right? It's always going to be a work in progress, but yeah. I, I feel like you, you inherently have that. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, Steve is great, so he'd be my, my pick. Okay. We haven't gotten him yet either, so that's good. Um, what uh, some of your cringeworthy pet peeve runner mistakes that you see? Um, like some either a newbie comes to you or somebody that even has been running for like 30, 40 years. Like what are the, what are the pet peeves of these common mistakes you just shake your damn head at? Like, come on, folks, get it together. You got any? <laughs> Um, uh, running while just running at, at the expense of so much else for not a lot of benefit, um, particularly in cases of, of injury or, or whatever, uh, where people just want to throw on a, a knee brace or try to foam roll out some injuries so they can go out and run anyway. And that always has me shaking my head. It's like, why, why not just take today, like do a, do a bike ride. You'll feel better tomorrow. Like just the constant, like running themselves into the ground. Um, and then, you know, they think that, um, they think that like their running volume or whatever is only at a certain level and they're not overtraining or whatever, but overtraining isn't about what your weekly mileage is or how fast you're running. It's were you ready for that workout or not? You know, and people go into to these workouts that they're not, recovered yet or ready to do um and they run themselves too hard too often at the expense of their actual training quality right and then you see that training quality tank over time and they're just trying to get it up uh trying to get it up there time and time again um 
but they're just not ready for it. And so they end up in this downward spiral of trying to do this hard quality workout, failing, not realizing how bad of a job they did, taking 24 hours to recover, and then they go back out and try to do another hard workout the next day. Um, that's what gets me, is people that have the drive to work hard, and it's just so misdirected. That's uh, exactly what was outlined by our last coach. Uh, and he ended up writing a book called Run Great When It Counts. And he learned that the hard way through college and post-college. More work and harder work was better until he became the worst version of his athletic self and had to find it out. So, And I'm hearing a little brack and cracker, uh, pay now or pay later in there. <laughs> so working at a – and I, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus or tell anyone that they're, they're doing something wrong. But you know, in the environment that I work, I see a lot of people frequent the gym who spend – as much time working out as I do for marginal, if, if any real net benefit. And it's, it's, you just want to like shake them and be like, you realize you're at the gym for three hours a day and you're not getting the results you want. And you, do you not see the disconnect? Like, can we talk about what's going on? Um, and it just, it drives me nuts to see people that clearly want it bad enough to invest the time or the money or the energy and just miss it so much of the fundamentals. Yeah. It's like training for a competition. You're like going to fill this giant vat with water and you can only bring what you have. And some people just sit there and just throw buckets at the water or just throw, throw buckets at it over and over and over. And it's just all splashing back out. Yeah. Where the guy next to him just like casually filling that bucket casually. And the other guy's just taking water balloons and throwing it. And most of it's winding up on the floor and they just know I am working hard. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good analogy. I like it. It's frustrating to watch. Like you're just spilling. All you're doing is spilling. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's the big one right there. There's, there's so many pet peeves and, and little things. Um, that's the biggest one. Um, the other is, people not admitting to themselves how deeply flawed their, their lifestyle really is. Um, people that they don't sleep enough. They're too stressed. They drink way too much. Their diet is, is crap. And then they're like, I wonder what would happen if I start, you know, increase my, my volume from 50 to 60 miles per week. Like, why is that the question that you're asking right now? Why is that how you want to spend your, your energy when there's so many more important things you need to be addressing? Um, kind of same category, but, you know, people don't want to admit themselves, admit to themselves where the real work needs to be done. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what, I, uh, I was a daily drinker and I quit about 11 weeks ago, going on 11 weeks here. And I have not changed much about my training, I would say, as far as volume or intensity. I gave up a bad habit that I developed, we'll say. And uh, I am my running progress in the last 11 weeks, and I have not changed my running at all, has been astounding. Like absolutely astounding. And I'm not spending any more time on feet. I probably have less emotional investment in it at the moment because I'm focusing on other areas of my life to better myself. And my running's shooting through the damn roof. I'm sleeping better. I'm eating better as a result. Everything I've changed, but my running and my running is probably benefit benefited the most. It's crazy. And I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's hard to consolidate all these different factors into one thing, but I think one of the huge things that people don't talk about enough is just overall stress on the system. And 
for some people, like having a drink or two is a great, you know, stress relief ish, or maybe it kind of comes out as a, a net neutral thing. But for a lot of people, coupling, you know, a couple drinks on top of a bunch of other shitty lifestyle factors is just another drop in the bucket of all the things that's going on wrong. And so it might not, mm. might not be the right thing for that person. Um, so, you know, it's going to be different for everybody in terms of, you know, how much can you drink before it impacts your running and, and that kind of thing. Um, I find that most people drink twice as much as they say they do. Um, <laughs> and so that, um, mm-hmm. that ends up, I think, hurting people, um, you know, quite a bit in the long run. That's my personal example, but usually one good lifestyle choice, you know, less drinking meant much better sleep in the long run. It meant better food choices and they all, all one good decision outside of running trickles into another. So I just, I very much have lived what you, what you're mentioning there. Well, Kirk, for what it's worth, I still haven't had a drink since, since you stopped. Really? My fitness is, is <laughs> certainly popping more, popping more than what my training log says it should. Well, there you go. Exactly. I, I always make the joke that most people will talk about, you know, don't drink and drive, but uh, I don't drink or drive. <laughs> <laughs> no, a bike. I think there's a uh, that can be written for that, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Um, okay, so we get you out of here. Um, last question, okay? Questions, it's a three-parter, but we're just talking the flash, okay? The, glit, the glitz, the glam, the uh, Instagram-worthy stuff, okay? You get one quality workout. For the road, the trails, and OCR, you can pick one for each, right? Spanning okay. the distance between 5K and marathon distance, you only get one, one flashy quality workout that you can repeat through the rest of time. Um, let's start with the roads, trail, and then OCR. What would the workouts be? Uh, so I, I get one workout for each. I get to pick three workouts total, right? One for each yeah, you can do all the recovery work you want, but anytime it's go time and you put on those sexy pink alpha flies, <laughs> uh, it's this workout. Uh, gym workout or, or like running workout or both or run, running quality run workout. Quality run, run workout. Yeah, run, run. Okay, um, for the the road, I'm gonna have to go 800s. Um, I I love myself a good like Yasso 800 progression cycle. Um, I have a lot of fun with those. I think you can get really fit uh across a lot of distances just leveraging 800s as your speed work um so that's my answer for road like what would be the specific setup of that workout uh i'm if i haven't done 800s in a while or i haven't done speed work in a while i'll start at the bottom and start with you know like four or five of them or something like that uh and then work up towards uh you know depending on the distance i'm training for if i'm training for a marathon i might ramp up to a full 10 to 12 of them uh, if I'm training for more 5K, 10K, might cap it at like eight, but keep them a little bit faster, that kind of thing. Um, and then manipulate recovery and that, and all of that kind of stuff. But I think between changing your recovery and your pace and, and volume of repeats, I think just straight 800 repeats can fill a lot of a lot of purposes. Kirk, do you remember my road interval work that I chose? I think you were three minutes, thousands. Three minute intervals. Not yeah. too different there. Yeah, three and that three, like two and a half to three minute is really a sweet spot in terms of like, you know, percentage of the VO2 max and the, the amount of suffering you can endure <laughs> some of that kind of stuff. I think the three minute is a, a sweet spot. Uh, so yeah, like eight, 800,000. Yeah, our consensus was you were about three minutes, it seemed like, and I was about five. 
for my mm -hmm. preference, wasn't it? And so we kind of, whether the details changed between, but yeah, I'm three and five, but okay, cool. How about the trails? Considering undulation, undulating terrain, we'll call it. Yeah. And topography as you go. Um, for trails, I'm going to be a little different here probably and say I like um, some trail workouts um, that involve walking lunges. Um, so something like a hundred walking lunges immediately into a, a hard 800 or mile, uh, and then repeats of that. I think just building the, the strength ability to maintain form under fatigue, uh, and muscular, muscular damage and that kind of thing is a huge component of successful trail running. Um, so knowing that you might not always have the train you want or be able to train on the hill you want or, uh, that kind of thing, um, especially with like speed work, sometimes it's hard to actually sustain the high level of output depending on how your trail flows and that kind of stuff. Um, so in terms of sort of that like speed, power work, uh, I would go walking lunges into a, another like three to five minute belt. I like it. Yeah. Okay. OCR, sir. OCR. Um, this one gets gets interesting because there's a there's so many different workouts you can do, so many different things you can do to to replicate obstacles and create some of the same demands as uh, as you would find in an obstacle race. Um, I'm going to throw one out. I remember programming this for an athlete earlier this week, and I I was writing it, and I was hurting for them as I was writing it. I'm like this is going to suck so bad for you. Um, so I I remember that. I'm like you know what I I would do this one a couple more times, and it was. Uh, there's another 800 in there too. It's a 15 devil's press, 30 pull-ups, 800 meter run. Uh, and then a couple rounds of that. And it, was, it was pretty rough. Even up for a marathon distance. R rounds of that for a marathon distance OCR. I think that's fine for your, your speed or intensity work for the week. As long as you're getting your volume in elsewhere. How much weight for these devil presses? Uh, I would say, you know, RX weight for guys to be 50s in each hand. Uh, 35 for the ladies. Now I understand why you said the workout was going to suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is coming from a strong man's perspective for sure. I like it. I got more we could hit, but man, it's easy to pass time with you, Alec. Yeah. I, if, if there's anything, I'm, I'm not on a time front or anything. If you got any other questions you want to for sure get in, I'm, I'm happy to go for it. I'm actually going to chalk Alec up to reoccurring guest. I know. So I think, I think this is part one. We bring him back again in the future because he has some other areas of expertise, like specifically that I think he does very, very well that I'd like to have like a, almost a training Tuesday style chat of just one topic. Alec go. So I'm good with this. I'm going to end with the Yancey question. What's one thing people need to hear today, Alec? <laughs> um, oh God. I wish you would prep me for that one. There's, there's so many, like uh, I'm going to say, Tomorrow is no different than today in the sense that people always talk about, you know, what they're going to do tomorrow as like their decision-making process is going to be so much different by the time they're in, in that frame of mind. But like, if you're not going to do it today, you're probably not going to do it tomorrow either. Um, and just living with that mindset, training with that mindset, knowing that like, if there's something you want to do, don't say I'll get to it. Like just freaking get after it now. Um, cause it's, it's so easy to wake up tomorrow and say the same thing. Um, uh, so if there's a training plan you want to start, if there's a coach you want to hire, if there's a vacation you want to take, figure it out, make it happen. Don't keep waiting. Beautiful. 
I have to ask one more question, unfortunately. Well, I just think to pay credence to you being gracious with your time, Alec, um, if people want to work with you or reach out with questions, how do they do that? Best place to find me is just uh, Facebook or Instagram. Just shoot, shoot me a message and uh, I'll look forward to hearing from you. Where, what's your handle? Oh, I, that would probably be helpful, right? I'm such not a social media person. I don't have that lined up. Um, so I'm going to say it from the top. If you want to get in touch with me, send me a message on Facebook. I'm Alex Blenis. I should be the only one. And on Instagram, at Alex Blenis also should be the only one there. Nailed it. <laughs> We're going to have the music rolling at this point, so it's over. You did it. Sweet. Sweet.